Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Sunday mornings at 7 on Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for spending this time with me today. I'm looking forward to the day as it is 9-11. I feel a little patriotic, and I know this is a sacred day for many as we look at what happened to our country. And I thought, well, it might be good to revisit a couple of discussions I've had with some uh, pretty prominent people. Senator Tom Cotton is going to be uh, coming on the program in just a minute. He's written a book called Sacred Duty, A Soldier's Tour at Arlington National Cemetery, and then Justin Kane will be uh, joining me. Uh, he's also written a book called Drifted. We've got a full second hour coming up with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood and a Navy SEAL by the name of Will Chesney. That's all ahead. I like to be thorough in my research when I have guests coming on, and I have to say I now know everything there is to know about Tom Cotton, and I am so impressed. I'm going to suggest that he runs for Senate. Tom, welcome to the show. Bill, it's good to be on with you. It's a little late there. I uh, already got over my skis on that one. But thanks for having me on. Thanks for your interest in uh, Sacred Duty. Well, it is a powerful book, and uh, your story and, and the story of the Old Guard is absolutely fascinating. And and I I got into this, and I, I couldn't stop, which is probably what you hope everyone who picks it up does. Yeah, I'm uh, <clears throat> certainly gratified by the response that Sacred Duty has received Um mostly on behalf of the young men and women who serve at Arlington National Cemetery and those who they honor. Um, I wrote this book um, in large part because I I know so many Americans hold Arlington and those soldiers in such high regard, and their story had never been told. So Sacred Duty is the story of the Old Guard of Arlington National Cemetery. Yeah. Tom, would you talk about the origin of the Old Guard? I know the first soldier, uh, William Christian, was buried May thirteenth, 1864, that goes yes, that, quite a ways back. The, uh, yeah, that's the first uh, official military burial right. at Arlington. Uh, but the Old Guard itself is another 80 years older than that. It was created in 1784. Uh, we had demobilized almost all of the troops who had won the Revolutionary War, and Congress decided uh, the nation needed at least some small cadre of competent and experienced, well-trained officers and non-commissioned officers. So they created what was then known as the 1st American Regiment. And for 160 years, it fought all of the nation's major conflicts up to and including World War II. But in 1948, the Army assigned its oldest regiment to its most sacred ground. And for the last 71 years, the Old Guard has been responsible for military honor funerals in Arlington and guarding the Tomb of the Unknowns and major ceremonies around the capital region. Now, the um, Old Guard is one of those kind of rare uh, units that's composed of, of of applicants and volunteers. Do I have that right? Yes, it is. Um, most Army units um, are based on what they call the needs of the Army, but the Old Guard, along with some of the elite special operations forces, is almost entirely those who have volunteered at basic training or those who have applied as officers or NCOs. It's not always the case, Bill, as I write in Sacred Duty. I actually did not apply, did not submit an application. 
Um, but uh, the Army in those days, 2006, was stretched thin, and the Old Guard, as being a priority unit, had the uh, prerogative under the Army's uh, guidance to select officers to come there. So I fit all the basic criteria in terms of height and weight, physical fitness, uh, being a ranger, uh, being an airborne soldier. Uh, I had my combat deployment behind me, and I was very blessed that the Old Guard decided to pick me and five other Screaming Eagles from the 101st Airborne uh, to come to Fort Myer right after we returned from Iraq. Yeah, would you talk a little bit about your tour of du- uh, duty? In Iraq or at Fort Myer in the cemetery? Well, I would like a little bit of Iraq and then and then in the cemetery as well. So uh, that was really my first tour. I went there straight after getting out of um, all of my initial entry training at Fort Benning, the 101st to be specific. 4th Brigade, the 506 Infantry Regiment, was already deployed in 2006. So after just a few weeks of drawing my gear and getting my shots at Fort Campbell, I was sit on the first bird downrange. Wow. Got into Iraq and took over a platoon of 40 infantrymen in just a few days and uh, spent the rest of my time there most of that year uh, conducting raids and ambushes and movements to contact, other kinds of combat patrols uh, throughout southern and central Baghdad. Um, Pretty, uh, pretty hairy times in those days. Not the worst fighting that we saw, of course. That was in the initial invasion and then uh, some of the, a couple of the major battles like Fallujah and the Surge. Uh, but uh, we lost a lot of very good young soldiers there, unfortunately, in 2006. Um, but as I said, in the final days of my time in Iraq, the uh, Old Guard had selected me to uh, come to Arlington. So I had the high privilege of going directly from a combat environment to going to Arlington National Cemetery and seeing firsthand how our nation honors those who have laid down their life in defense of our freedom, and then, of course, performing those funerals myself. Tom, the uh, attention to detail with the Old Guard is so unbelievably fascinating. Would you talk about some of just from the care of the uniforms to the grooming of the horses and just some of the things that go on? Because it really is fascinating. Simple standard for every mission that we perform in Arlington. That's the standard of perfection. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might have performed 20 to 30 funerals a day. Uh, a soldier or a small team of soldiers might have performed six or seven a day, uh, but it was never routine, uh, never commonplace, because we knew that for every family and for every fallen hero or veteran we laid to rest, that, that was a once in a lifetime moment, a lifetime in the making. And there are no do overs in Arlington National Cemetery. As I write in Sacred Duty, the battalion commander of the Old Guard Battalion that's primarily responsible for funerals, um, who himself is a five-time combat veteran and a member, uh, veteran, I should say, of the elite Ranger Regiment, um, said he had never felt pressure like that anywhere in the Army. Um, it's a self-imposed pressure, but it's a very uh, very intense, very palpable kind of pressure because we wanted to make sure that we got every single thing right, and that's why it could take two to three months before a soldier was qualified, certified to perform funerals in the cemetery from having got his uniform in perfect, pristine condition, much of which is made from scratch, from materials you might get at Hobby Lobby or a hardware store, um, to marching in the unique Old Guard style, to performing some of the small unit collective tasks that are so essential to a funeral, folding a flag perfectly uh, with a six- or eight-man casket team uh, in exactly one minute and 55 seconds or making seven rifles sound like one on three consecutive volleys during the three-volley salute. Or, as you say, being able to ride horses um, after 
three or four months of horsemanship training uh, all day long in all the conditions and stop them exactly where you need them to be stopped for the transfer of remains from a hearse to a caisson or the caisson to the grave site. Um, the old guard doesn't put any, any funeral, any soldier in the cemetery until they're confident they can perform every single funeral to the standard of perfection. I, I almost tear up hearing that description. You know, you say you've got one chance to get it right, and it's always uh, perfect. Every every funeral is perfect, and I, it's just such a beautiful sentiment that that's the commitment that you do for every family. For every single family, yeah, and it doesn't matter whether it was uh, President George H. W. Bush's family uh, last December at the state funeral that we all saw unfolding on TV, or the funeral for a humble private who served sixty or seventy years ago in Korea or World War. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, as I write in Sacred Duty, every funeral is treated with the same level of respect uh, and the same diligence. Um, even when we all had um, our eyes affixed upon the old guard and sister services for the state funeral for President Bush, uh, there was a company that stayed behind at Arlington National Cemetery that performed the funerals that had been scheduled there for every other veteran uh, for so many weeks. And as I say in Sacred Duty, many of the families uh, came jogging after the old guard soldiers um, following their funeral before the soldiers boarded a bus and went to their next funeral to thank them because they were so sure the previous weekend that their funeral would be canceled um, due to the state funeral. Um, but uh, as one soldier told me, which I write in the conclusion of Sacred Duty, uh, we treat every funeral the same, whether it's President Bush or private, and I bet that's the way President Bush would like it. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. And I was uh, I actually went on the... Uh, uh, YouTube and watched a couple of videos of of soldiers prepping and getting their their everything ready and um, when you talk about uniforms and it's almost like they they rip them apart and rebuild them and then I saw lighters going up I don't know what they were doing with the lighters <laughs> the whole thing is fascinating yeah um, it takes a long time to get one of those uniforms ready um, you know they're especially made uh, for the old guard mm-hmm the general officers in the capital region who use the same clothing facility at Fort Myer as do the old guard soldiers, a very thick kind of wool, uh, not very comfortable to wear in the summertime, I can tell you. Um, each old guard company has industrial size presses in their basement where soldiers spend hours pressing in the uh, creases you see in the sleeves or the pleats in the back to give a sharp V-shaped taper mm-hmm. uh, to the blouse, as the military calls the coat jacket and to have those sharp creases in the pants. I mean, a lot of us are used to doing that in civilian life with an iron, and then you know you wash it and you do it again. But uh, these uniforms, you spend hours and hours and hours burning those creases in to the point where they might get slightly softened during a long, hot day in the cemetery the way the soldiers are performing today in Arlington National Cemetery, but they never lose that basic, deep, crisp press. And then, as you say, the, the metals... The insignia on the uniform, all of those are made from scratch. You can buy it off the rack, and it looks okay off the rack, but okay is not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, again, everything has to be exactly perfect. So soldiers spent hours and hours and hours um, handcrafting medals that you otherwise and most other soldiers around the world would buy from a uh, post exchange or a clothing sales store on a military post. All that effort, uh, though, is simply a reflection of the respect, the reverence, even the love that those soldiers feel for those who have gone before them or those who just laid down their lives a few days earlier uh, overseas. 
Senator Tom Cotton is my guest. His book, Sacred Duty, A Soldier's Tour at Arlington National Cemetery. We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back to the show. I have on our studio line, uh, Senator Tom Cotton. He's written an amazing book called Sacred Duty, A Soldier's Tour at Arlington National Cemetery. Um, Tom, I would love for you to talk about Section 60 of the cemetery. The cemetery has several dozen sections. Uh, It's up to the 80s now. Okay. Uh, the, The higher the section number, the more active it is. Many of the older sections are essentially full. Every now and then a distant family member might be buried there. They might fill in something on the perimeter. But the higher numbers in the 50s to the 80s are the ones most commonly used. In 2002, the cemetery leadership made the decision that they would uh, lay to rest all of those who died in Iraq or soon, in our, or I'm sorry, Afghanistan or soon in Iraq in a single section. Um, so that would be the final resting place for any soldier, sailor, airman, marine who was killed in the global war on terrorism. Section 60 is one of the larger sections in the southeastern corner of the cemetery. And because of that decision, it is a really uh, unusual, I would say, a unique section within the cemetery. Some of those older sections are, you have, you know, longtime descendants visiting or history buffs visiting, um, but they're relatively quiet. Section 60 is very much a living testament to those who have given their life in defense of our nation over the last 18 years on any weekend, but especially Memorial Day weekend. You see family members, you see battle buddies, you see old friends, you see school uh, and church youth groups all visiting to pay their respects to those uh, who have been killed in the war on terrorism over the last 18 years. And you see people bond, they get to know each other. Um, As I've heard some families talk about other families, there are neighbors because a child or a husband is buried near each other. I've met some of these families over my repeat visits to the cemetery. It is just a, it's a, it's a section of the cemetery that is really a living testament because of the loved ones who are always there, the constant presence of pictures and um, mementos and flowers on the headstones. Uh, many people call Section 60 the saddest acre in America, and I, I understand why they call it that, um, but I prefer to think of it as the noblest acre in America because it represents the very most noble sacrifice that so many young men and women have made for their country over the last 18 years. And Tom, uh, Section 60 is extra personal for you, isn't it? So Section 60 was the place where we buried um, those who died in Iraq or Afghanistan when I was there in 2007 and 2008. And uh, there are some photographs that I've seen throughout my research for the book uh, that poignantly show the, uh, the eastern half of Section 60 when we were working there 12 years ago, and it was an uh, open green field. Uh, and if you visited Section 60 today, you would see that it's almost completely full by this point. Those are not entirely um, those who have been killed in the war on terror, as um, the deaths have thankfully declined uh, since the days I was at the cemetery. That section has reverted to being a more traditional section where you have older veterans of Vietnam, Korea, and World War II joining their sons and grandsons from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, But for all of us uh, who serve, um, it's very common to know someone who was buried there uh, and to have repeat visits there to them to pay your respects. You know, for me, one person I write about in Sacred Duty is Mark Stratton, 
um, with whom I trained at Fort Bragg and with whom I deployed to Afghanistan. We were both on reconstruction teams in 2009. Or, you know, loved ones there of people I've gotten to know and I didn't know them, like General John Kelly's son, who was killed in Afghanistan in 2011, making John and his wife Karen gold star parents. Um, there are just many, many poignant stories um, in Section 60. Mm-hmm. And would you uh, talk a little bit about the guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier? I know that has nothing to do with weather conditions, or it's 24-7, isn't it? So the tomb of the unknown soldier was created on what we now call Veterans Day, what was then called Armistice Day uh, in 1921, November 11th. And uh, within about uh, 15 years, it had a uh, full-time, around-the-clock military guard the old guard took responsibility for that mission when they uh, moved into Fort Myer in the cemetery in 1948, and ever since, um, for the last 71 years, the old guard, 82 years entirely, uh, that ground has been guarded uh, 24 hours a day, uh, 365 days a year, under all weather conditions, uh, driving heat uh, and humidity like you have today, uh, terrible blizzards, even hurricanes. Um, there's always a military guard present on that plaza as an expression of gratitude and love. We have not just for those three unknowns, but for uh, every soldier who's laid down his life in defense of our nation. And the, uh, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier platoon is the small, one of the smallest units inside of the Old Guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, only has about 25 or 30 soldiers at any given time. and that is it, But that is their only task. They don't perform other funerals. They don't perform other ceremonies. They don't have additional duties. That is their only task. And therefore, because of the, the demands of the work as well, you know, they will spend literally a 26-hour day. You know, it's, they make true what the old joke about the Army is, that it fits more hours into the day than 24 hours. <laughs> now we're just before taking 22 hours off and rotating back in um, to ensure that they are not only performing that mission to standard, but also performing or training the next generation of Tomb Guard to perform that mission to standard. And Tom, what kind of uh, uh, visitor turnout do they have at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier every year? So the best estimate for Arlington itself is about four million a year. That's a lot of people. Uh, And I think it's a safe assumption that the vast majority of those four million will make, make their way up the hill to uh, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Um, the only you know, probable exceptions to that are those who are present in the cemetery for a funeral of a loved one. But I have to tell you, I've met many people at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier who explained they were uh, at the tomb because they had attended a funeral earlier that day and they wanted to come back and see the rest of Arlington. Wow. Uh, or they had had a funeral you know, for someone last year and they were back to commemorate the first anniversary of uh, their loved one's death and wanted to take in the tomb. So I think it's safe to say that uh, pretty close, if not more than 4 million uh, visitors go to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier every year. And the decorum at the tomb is uh, silence. They just, they're... Silence and respect. There are signs Sil- on both sides of it that say silence and respect. Mm-hmm. That they, and, and I can tell you, it, sometimes those guards have to uh, step off the mat Yes. Up and down which they walk and enforce silence and respect. It's oftentimes for people who don't realize what they're doing you know, or can't control it, say an, an elderly visitor who may be hard of hearing and mm-hmm. can't hear the sound of his own or the tone of his own voice or, or maybe a, a special needs child. Um, but uh, it's very uncommon for they have, that they have to do that because the air of uh, respect and reverence 
at the tomb is just palpable. I can tell you I, uh, I spent many, many days there last year researching this book, and at almost every change in the guard, um, you could hear a pin drop uh, as those the clicks of the sentinel's steel-plated uh, heels came around the corner on that marble plaza. It's spectacular, Tom. It really is. I've not seen it in person, but I, I have watched the videos, and it is breathtaking. And how long do those shifts last? They last for 30 minutes a day, or 30 minutes during the summer months and an hour in the winter months. The difference is uh, to ensure that you don't have any kind of heat casualties for the tomb guards in the summer months. And that's for the duration of the cemetery's uh, hours of operations, which in the summer is from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m., in the winter from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Of course, the uh, tomb is guarded around the clock, as I said, so when the cemetery is closed, they continue to have a guard there, but the shifts can be longer or shorter, or you might have more than one guard um, on the plaza, you know, conducting training for the younger or newer uh, tomb guards. Um, but 30 minutes during the uh, summer hours and um, 60 minutes during the uh, winter months. Has there, has there been uh, occasions where they've had to uh, use some kind of uh, force of some kind, uh, either restraining somebody or, heaven forbid, use their firearm? Very rare. Most people don't realize that they are actual guards, um, and it, it's very rare for to see someone, to see a guard, uh, step off the mat and brandish uh, his rifle. They will do that, though, and it's, it seems to be popular uh, with YouTube viewers. It has probably the second most links of any uh, YouTube video after just the basic changing of the guard of soldiers stepping off the mat um, that someone caught on a smartphone mm-hmm. while they were filming the changing of the guard and uh, enforcing the standards of silence and respect. Yeah. Uh, to my knowledge, only once in the 1980s um, was there an effort that it took uh, physical force to restrain someone. Um, I think that was in maybe 1983, and it also happened to be in the early morning hours when they were... Um, also rehearsing a ceremony there, so there are a large number of soldiers from other units in the old guard who was there to who were there to rehearse a uh, a reflying ceremony later in the day. But uh, they are all I can say is they are fully prepared to defend not only the tomb of the unknown soldier but defend themselves against any threat. Mm-hmm. So, Tom, when you become president, please keep me in mind for a cabinet position. Uh, I'm very happy right now to be the senator for the state of Arkansas and uh, also very uh, grateful to have had a chance to be able to tell the old guard story, and thanks for having me on to do that. Yeah, it's been a delight. Senator Tom Cotton's been my guest. His book, Sacred Duty, A Soldier's Tour at Arlington National Cemetery. I suggest you race out and get a copy. Um, we'll take a short break and be right back.
life? Have you moved away from the Lord at some point? Uh, I think it happens to many believers, just you drift away a little bit. And we're going to talk to Pastor Justin Kane at New Day Church in Illinois. He's got a new book out called Drifted. And he's going to help uh, us see why we drift and and where we drift to and how it affects our relationship with God. And probably, I'm guessing, this will apply to most listeners. So, uh, Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate you having me on. Yes. This is a, a great treat, and I know this is a very sober day for many people, Remind you know, just remembering what took place yeah. 19 years ago. So where, thank you again. Where were you when you got the news? I was actually in college. I was going from one class to another class, and everything everything stopped. Yeah, no kidding. And everybody was glued to a TV, and I was in the uh, upper room of one of the, the buildings and watched it on a little TV for, for hours on end. All right, so I just have a general idea how old you are now. So you're just a little older than me, which is good. So uh, let's talk <laughs> about your good. let's talk about your book, Drifted. Uh, very interesting uh, title. Very interesting book. Now let's just talk about COVID and how with so many churches shutting down. Uh, has that been an opportunity for people to drift? Yeah, yeah. I think I think almost on the reverse side, it's actually been a blessing for many people to actually get back to a place where some of the crutches um, and the very things that they had their confidence in were no longer at their disposal. Hmm. And so they had to find a place where this relationship is between them and Jesus. It's not between them and their pastor or them and their, their minister or them and their mentor. It's between them and God. And I think parents have had to find a way to um, bring God back into the homes. And so I think in some respects, this could possibly be a blessing in disguise. I have the opportunity to pastor uh, a young church and um, young, and I mean, I started the church a couple of years ago, and I found this to be something that has been a blessing to many of them, finding their way back to a relationship with God that isn't based upon just the church they go to or the Sunday service that they attend. Yeah. So, Justin, let's um, talk about the ways in which we drift, yeah. why we drift, uh, you know, and how that affects our relationship with God. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I think it's a great way to start is it happened to me. I've been in ministry for almost 20 years, uh, a pastor for all 20 of those years. And I didn't realize, Bill, that I had drifted and I didn't drift into a lifestyle of sin. I didn't drift away from the church. I drifted into a functional, transactional way of relating with God. Mm. I think it happens to every single believer. Um to some degree, drifting is something that it's very hard to detect when it comes to sin and it comes to a lifestyle that is maybe contrary to God. It's easy to detect, but when you actually drift into function, you actually are admired for the letters that you create and the function that you exemplify. And so people begin to um, applaud me. And when you when when I found myself there, stepping away from a ministry that I was a part of, the question I had to ask myself is, how did I get here? How did I get from a place where it was all about Jesus to a place where now I'm transacting with God, where it, mm. the whole relationship with my father is dependent upon my performance? And it, mine, so to speak, led to a, a great level of pride. I was very proud with the ladders that I created. And what I mean by a ladder is I believe that without even realizing it, we've exchanged the cross that saved us for ladders that actually bring us to a, a, a better place with God. 
and we miss it greatly. And we as ministers are guilty of teaching function. It happens to um, young kids. Uh, my two young daughters are in private school, and at the very onset of a young age, they're taught how to be good Christian kids even before they know Jesus is a personal Savior. So they're taught at a young age how to function as a Christian but not necessarily have the relationship that's thriving. And I found that it has led to great level of pressure, stress, um, disappointment, condemnation, guilt, shame. I don't find many people that are enjoying their relationship with God because they feel like they just don't measure up. They feel like they still have so far to go. Uh, so this drifting is not referencing the drift into a, a sinful life. It's a drift into a functional, transactional way of relating with God. Mm-hmm. Justin, I, I hope I say this well, and excuse me if I don't, yeah. but is it possible for uh, pastors to start feeling like professional Christians and and their church is their business and they've got to get business done and in a way it takes them away from their intimate relationship with Christ? Oh, I mean, Bill, you 100% hit the, the nail on the head. Is is that's exactly what happens. We, we as ministers drift into, you know, and you know what, because we get admired for our giftings, sure. we get admired for our disciplines. And that's, this is one of the questions I ask um, to those who come to New Day, and it, it's a trick question, so we don't have to answer it, you know, if you're listening to me. But I ask them, who's the best Christian you know? And after I give them some time <laughs> to think about that, I, I say, if you even have a name, you've drifted. You've drifted away from what the gospel is because all of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And if we start to see pastors and ministers and mentors as, while they're here, I can't wait till I get there, and we start to admire their functionality, we will try to emulate and conform to, oh, you pray every morning? I'm going to pray every morning. Oh, you pray two times a day? I'm going to pray two. And, and, and what happens is that function, it doesn't lead us closer to God. It actually leads us to a place where we start to feel, it actually causes us to feel like God must be disappointed because I can't pray like my pastor. And so ministers are guilty of allowing people to be, put them on a pedestal in a place where we now start to, we start to make sure people believe about us um, the way that they want to. And we are all fallen, broken humans. And I want to be as transparent and honest with people as I possibly can on my journey so that they know we're in the same boat. We are, we are all sons and daughters who desperately need the mercy and the grace of God every single day. I just have a call to be a pastor, and I have a gift to be a teacher. But that does not put me in a place where I'm a better Christian than somebody else. Mm-hmm. Justin, how do we recognize a drifter, and then how do we come alongside and love on them? Uh, because, you know, people will pretty much show us what they want us to see. Yeah, that's a great question. I think drifting can be recognized by... Uh, two things. Relational, it's relational versus functional. I think one of the staple statements in our our community that I I pastor is God is relational before he's functional. He's not anti-function. It's just that function has to be birthed out of a relationship. So how do we know that we drifted? One of the key ways is we believe that we initiate and God responds to us. So if I do this, then God will do this. If I do this, then God will do this. So if I serve, then I'll have a better blessed life. If Mm -hmm. I give, if I pray, then God's going to respond to that. And so we start to use those things to get something from God. The relational gospel tells us God did what he did, and now we respond to him every single day. So his mercies are new every day. I'm going to respond to that mercy 
every single day. His grace is in abundance, so I'm going to respond to his grace. He has reconciled me on the cross, so I'm going to respond to his reconciliation. And now my entire life, from my prayer, link, my prayer time to my Bible reading time, is all about responding to a father who dearly loved me, found a way to bring me back home, and now I'm just responding to him. So I'm not trying to earn his love. I'm actually responding to, to a love that he's already have, has toward me. And so that's why the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. So everything is responsive in our Christian walk. And when we drift into a, I do this and God, will you do this? We've drifted into a functional, transactional way of relating with God. And it kills intimacy and it kills joy. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. I would love for you to add into this discussion, the sowing and reaping um, oh, yes, idea. I would love to. Please. Right now? Yes, Good. please. Um, is, is, I, I want to start off with this statement. We have the, the amazing privilege of reaping what Jesus sowed for us. So think about this, Bill, is that Jesus died on our behalf and us on that cross. He now says, as a result of you putting your trust in me, I've exchanged my life for your life. And now Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So there is this exchange that took place at the cross. And now I have to identify, according to Romans 6, with the death and the resurrection of Christ. So I died with him, but I was also raised to life with him. And now I'm granted this newness of life. So I am now enjoying all of the, the reaping of what Jesus sowed. Now mm-hmm. that comes to now decisions. And this is where I think people have to understand the nature of God. When we mess up, of course, God is always ready to forgive. We see that with the prodigal son, that when he came back, the father ran to him. But when we mess up, we see God sometimes as a punisher. Well, God's going to punish you if you disobey. There's a big difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment is actually, in a criminal language, it's to bring justice to what was done wrong. But discipline is the reward of being his son or daughter that he loves. So now I'm not being punished for the wrongdoing. I'm not going to reap his punishment or his wrath for the things that I do wrong. I'm actually going to be disciplined because he, he dearly loves me, and he's going to course correct me out of a relationship, not out of a, how could you do that? You, I'm done with you. You know what? Because we see in the prodigal son, he had his script. He came back, and he was like, okay, I'm going to tell my dad. I know I'm unworthy. I've sinned against you. But the dad ran to him, and he hugged him. And you know what he did? He actually gave him what he didn't deserve. He said, bring out the fatted calf, bring out the robe and the ring on the finger and the sandals. He wanted to first and foremost affirm, you are my son no matter what. And it was probably the hardest thing for that young man to receive what he didn't deserve. But God showered him with goodness. And I believe that's why the Bible says, the goodness of God leads one to repentance. Mm, that's uh, well said. I appreciate Thank that. you. Yeah. So we're trying to figure out how to accept this love from God when we live in yeah. a world where we are always held to certain timelines and uh, yeah. you know, what's what are you doing? How are you winning out in the world? What, what are your accomplishments? <laughs> yeah. How am I performing? Oh, my gosh. You're, you're totally just speaking the language of, of what it happens when we drift because— Think about it. The kingdom of this world, you get a, you get ahead and you become by doing. So if you want to be promoted, 
you make more sales. And if you want to reach the, the top of the ladder, man, you need to work your way around that culture and become the biggest, you know, producer in that organization. But in the kingdom, Bill, you don't become by doing, you become by receiving. And so all of my life is now learning how to receive from the Father. And the three things that I love to tell people every day that I receive is I receive his, his view of me. I'm his beloved son, his purpose for me, which is to house the presence of God on this earth mm-hmm. and to, to receive his thoughts toward me, which David said, his thoughts are precious and innumerable. And I have to go into receiving now who I am to God and who he is to me. So I receive his gift of righteousness. I receive the abundance of grace. I receive the mercies that are brand new every single day. I receive the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, inside my life. And now I go into receiving mode because you can't give what you haven't first yet received from the Father. And so when, it, when you, what you said about the love statement is we have it so tied to our performance that we believe, and I ask people this all the, all the time, how are you in God? And Bill, you know what? I have never had one person answer me differently than, hey, I'm good because of what I've done, or I'm bad because, man, I haven't really spent time in the Word. And so they base their entire relationship with God upon them. Wow. And we are to base our relationship upon the perfect Lamb of God that was slain before the foundations of the world so that I can enjoy God now. If it's based upon me, I live with a heavy backpack that I I just know at any moment I'm going to fail. And guess what? We're going to. And when when we do, we feel like, our whole world collapsed. How are me and God? And so we, I see a lot of people who doubt their relationship with God. They don't have confidence to approach him. Their prayer life is hindered because of it, all because they've drifted into a functional, transactional way of relating God. Exactly what you said. They're trying to perform and achieve their way to a place where God goes, I'm so proud of you because of what you do. No, I receive his promises based upon who I am to him, not what I've done for him. Not to mention they get exhausted trying to do that. Exactly. You get exhausted. You get weary. I am telling you, Bill, that's why I feel like this message is liberating because people are striving to attain something with God that the cross already provides for them. And so they're trying to make their relationship with God good every day by what they do. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 3, he says, who bewitched you? Who demonized your way of thinking that you actually began in the spirit by receiving a faith? But now you're trying to perfect yourself by the works of the law. He says, you guys have this all wrong. You receive in the spirit, but you also actually are perfected by faith, by faith just as well. Mm-hmm. All right, let me take a little break. My guest Thank you. is Pastor Justin Kane. If you have drifted away from the Lord, let me know how you got back and how long you drifted. And send me a text. I'd love to hear. I've got time for one or two quick text messages, 877 933 2484. Did you drift away? And how'd you get back? Love to hear it. 877-93-FAITH. Be back with Justin in a minute. Justin Kane. He's pastor of New Day Church in Illinois. He's got a new book out called Drifted. Help people see why they drift and where they have drifted to and how it has affected their relationship with God. 
Justin, you're doing yeah. an excellent job. Just so you know, I'm getting some nice feedback from listeners. Uh, one in Thank particular you, just sent me a text and said, amen and amen. How about that? Yep, that's awesome. Yeah. I hope it's ministering to them. I it hope has, it is. It has been a life-changing journey for me. One of the most challenging four years of my life, but the most rewarding of coming back to a place of freedom, joy, and intimacy. I can't tell you, I can't even explain or explain the experience that I'm, I'm living in right now because it's been overwhelming blessing of God. Yeah, those are three very happy words. Freedom, joy, intimacy, is that the, is that the three? Yep. I love Freedom, it. joy, and intimacy. I don't know who and, doesn't want um, more of that. Yep, without a doubt. And you know what? We try to get it in so many ways. And as I went back to that thought is that we exchange the cross for ladders. And those ladders, no matter how many pious steps you put on those ladders, they never get you to where you think you want to go or where you think God wants you to go. And I tell people this all the time, that this journey that we are on is not one of destination. It's one of discovery. And I'm learning how to discover who God is for me and who I am to God. Because many people have this idea that they're here and they need to get here. And they have this big gap in between that they're disappointed with. And at the end of the day, it's not about the destination. The destination is God. (laughs) Jesus came to restore us to his father, not to get us to be better Christians Mm -hmm. or to make us look good on the outside. I'm at my destination, which is intimacy with the father. And now all of my function, everything I do is now out of that relationship, not to get that relationship any better. Yeah. Justin, let's go to a little nine-minute boot camp here. That's about how much time we have left um, on how we uh, get back to a genuine relationship with Jesus. And let's base it on, of course, what he did for us, not our behavior, because if we do our behavior, we're dead in the water. So how do you get back to a place where you drift? I think it's first and foremost very important, and I'll do my very best to, to share this in just a couple minutes is to understand why we drift. And I feel like, Bill, and I, and I don't say this as a, a prideful statement, I really just feel like over the last four years, I, I try to answer that question. Why do people who started with a thriving relationship with Jesus drift so easy into a functional way? And I believe there's two very important reasons, but they're very noble and they're very um, undetected. The first one is Bill, we strive to get closer to God. Now, I know initially when you hear me, you're going to be like, okay, what's he trying to say? But first, we strive to get closer to God. Now, think about this. The Bible tells us that we are one spirit with the Lord. The Bible also tells that Jesus lives in us, and we live in Jesus, and God has made his home or his abode inside of us. And so how do we get closer than being one? And so if we're striving to get closer to God, I ask people, how do you get closer to God? They immediately give me a list of steps. It, does, it could be 10, 3, 7, 15, 20, 25, 30, or 1. It doesn't matter. But those steps are striving to get something that God already made happen on the cross. Jesus secured a oneness with us and the Father. So I'm no longer striving to get close to God. I'm trying to discover the God that I'm already close to. Mm. Now I'm reading my Bible to discover God who I'm close to. I'm not reading my Bible to try to get closer to him. I'm not going to a worship service to try to get closer to God. Because the reason why we love function so much is because you can measure it and you can compare it. And it either leads to a great sense of pride or a great sense of condemnation because you're not as far as somebody else or because you're much further than somebody else. The second main reason why we drift is that we, our goal is we want to become better Christians. Again, a very noble pursuit. But the Bible says that we've been made complete in Christ. 
just like a newborn baby who is brand just born, that is a complete human. It just has to now develop in being a human. And the same is with us. We were made new creations in Christ. I am complete in Christ. Now I'm discovering who I am and learning how to walk in that new creation. And so I'm not, now think about this for a second. I'm not trying to become closer to God or become a better Christian. I'm trying to discover the God that I'm close to, and I'm trying to discover who he made me in Christ Jesus. Now, imagine trying to preach a message without trying to help people become closer or helping them become better. What are you left with? You're left with encouraging them to discover who God is for them and who they are to God. And it has been the greatest three years of preaching for me of trying to help people grasp how good this God is that is to them, who he is, and who they are to God. And uh, it's been a challenge as well. But those two things, once they're off the table, will help you center yourself back to a relational understanding that it's all about what Jesus has done for you, and now you just get to live a life responding to him. Mm -hmm. Justin, if I think of this functional um, relationship with God, that's that's something that the human brain thinks, maybe I can control this, which is (laughs) completely silly. But the relational gospel, if I have this correctly uh, from your book, puts the focus completely on God's love for us, and you can bask in that all day long. You can, you're exactly right. I mean, you probably took the words right out of the book. It's amazing because now the spotlight is on Jesus. That's what the relational gospel does. It puts the spotlight and the pressure back upon where it belongs, and it takes the spotlight off of me. And exactly what you said, when we are functional, we feel like we're in control of it, like because we can measure it. We can see how much progress we made. We can feel good about ourselves. But when you have a relational gospel, You can't measure it because all you can measure is what Christ did for you. Therefore, it leads to no pride and it leads to no condemnation. You now get to enjoy being a son of God or a daughter of God. And the spirit inside of it cries out, Abba, Father. And I give people this example. If there was a young kid and his father was the Supreme Court judge who had a high position of authority, and he had the ability to alter lives with just one verdict, and he had a robe that he wore every day, when he comes home, that kid does not relate to him as a judge. That little boy or little girl runs up to him and says, Daddy, you're home, and he sees him or she sees him as Daddy, and I want to help people get back to that place of intimacy and fellowship with God so that they're not distant from this big, scary judge that's going to uh, condemn them one day. No, they get to see him as Abba Father and enjoy his presence. Mm. You know, Justin, your personality seems very genuine and very joyful. So it's you're really walking the walk here, which I love. Talking the talk and oh, yeah, walking be- the walk. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, and I know we have just a few minutes left. It's because I've been there. Like I taught function. Uh, I was admired for my function. I lived in, or I was part of a functional ministry. Everything about my life was transactional. So if you give, man, God's going to do this. And you serve, God's going to do this. And I just came to a place where I feel so free to live for him. I'm not not free to go sin and live. I I don't want to do that. I want to live for my father because finally I know that he and I are secure. I don't have to worry about he and I. Mm -hmm. I just now get to enjoy him uh, operating through my life. Yeah. Can I ask you, Justin, to be a little pastoral in the last two minutes and pray for my dear beloved listeners who might feel like they've drifted? Absolutely. And I just want to say this one encouragement to those who are listening. I just want to remind you that God always 
meets you right where you are. He'll meet you in your pain, in your sin, in your function, in your rebellion. He'll meet you, and he will be the very thing that you need in that moment. So, Father, I pray right now for every single person that has ears to hear listening to this, that I know that this is not an accident, that they're actually um, engaged with our conversation that Bill and I are having. And so I pray in Jesus' name, open their eyes, Father God, to the realities of what Christ has done. Bring them back to a, a place where they know that, man, their relationship with you, Father, is completely determined by Jesus and not them. That, Father, your grace is abounding, your love is endless, and your mercies are brand new every morning. So help them to learn how to receive Even though they don't deserve it, we can receive freely because Christ exchanged his life for us. So I bless them today. I thank you for Bill, Father God. I thank you for the impact he's making, that he's influencing so many people. May you give him more grace to do what he's doing and to expand his borders. In Jesus' name, amen. Justin, thank you so much. There's nothing not to like about you. Thank you so much, Bill. This was a pleasure in... I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, as did I. Pastor Justin Kane has been my guest. His new book is Drifted. came out this month. We're going to take a little break, but when we come back, we're going to have Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood from the Heritage Foundation and then Navy SEAL uh, Will Chesney. And he's written a book on his hero dog, Cairo. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.